All right, there are some study guides. There's some study guides floating out there. If you don't have one, maybe you could throw a hand up and let me know. Anybody not have one? turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 7. So we're in the Sermon on the Mount still. And we're in Matthew chapter 7 verse 24 through 27. I want us to take a second to pray and I want to remind you that prayer is is not a bridge just to the next thing. Like we're about to pray, we're about to ask God to help us. There's a lot of reasons, there's a lot of reasons that we could be dull of hearing and not lean in and hear God's word. And so I want to pray that God would help us. So please lean in with me. Let's go to the Lord and let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. Your living and powerful word. It's like a fire. And you said it's like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. God, I pray that you would open our eyes to see beautiful, beautiful truth from your word. God, open our eyes that we might see. God, we need your help in this time. We need your help in this time, Lord. I pray, God, that you would remove from us distraction. God, I feel the temptation to count something like this as so common. But Lord, as we read your word together, I pray that you'd help us to see this is not common. We're asking, Holy Spirit, that you would address us through your word this morning. God, I pray that you would deal. Deal with us, God, in our hearts with this. These feelings of. Unworthiness, Lord to speak on your behalf or unworthiness to hear from you. Lord, in and of ourselves, we know we are completely unworthy. But Lord, we we see it in your word, God, that we are counted righteous because of the work of Christ, Lord, that we're purchased by his blood. And so we ask you, God, that you would, God, I pray that you would speak through me your word, And regardless of what's going on this week and the struggles, the sin, the weakness, the things that have happened this week, that you would cause every child of yours in this room to lean in and hear. God, we praise you. Thank you so much for forgiveness and repentance, Lord. That you made it clear in your word that the moment we sin, God, and our hearts are broken because we've rebelled against you, that you tell us to come to you and confess our sins, that we could come right back to you as our Father. And you said you're faithful and just to forgive us. And so, Lord, with that in mind, I pray that whatever is going on this week, that you you would help every one of us to lean in and hear the truth of your word this morning. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew chapter 7. We're going to be in verse 24 through 27. Can you hear me clearly or is this thing ringing? Can you hear me clearly? Give me some head nods. Okay. Look at it with me, Matthew 7, verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them 
will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. These are the final words of the sermon that Jesus preached, the final words of the Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount, as you know, Matthew chapter 5 through 7, chapter 5, 6, and 7. Would have been sweet to be sitting on that mountain and over here, Jesus preached this sermon. And what we just read are the last words of that sermon. Now, the major theme of this sermon, as we've referred to again and again, is what's being presented to us in the Sermon on the Mount is the Christian counterculture. And you get that phrase, or I got that phrase from John Stott in his commentary, the Christian counterculture. There's all kind of cultures throughout this world, but Jesus is laying out here, here's the culture of my people, here's the culture of my church. There's a lot of kingdoms throughout this world, but this is what the citizens of my kingdom look like. This is what they'll be like. This is the Christian counterculture being presented to us in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, chapter 5, verse 1 through 16 is Jesus' introduction where he tells us who his people are. You remember that? First 16 verses. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. And it goes on. The salt and the light. First 16 verses. This is who my people are. Okay, this is who they are. Now the body of the sermon, chapter 5, verse 17, all the way to chapter 7, verse 12, it's really King Jesus putting his finger on every area, almost every area of his people's lives. He says he puts his finger on this area and this area and this area because he reigns as king. and He's telling the citizens of his kingdom what to do and how to be. And then the conclusion of the sermon, which we've been in for the last several Lord's Days, is chapter 7, verse 13 through 27. And this is where King Jesus brings it to a close, and he brings his hearers to a crossroads. He's calling you to make a decision, to go right or left. Do this way, the right way, or the wrong way. He's calling you to, to this crossroads in this conclusion. And our passage today is the conclusion of the conclusion. It's the final words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. This is what Jesus leaves us with. What we just read. This is what he leaves us with in this sermon. And the plain sense of what's there. If we're just trying to just if we're just trying to think through what's the plain sense of what's there. Well, number one, there's two kinds of people that are given to us. It says that there, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them, it's one kind of people, and everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them, that's another kind of people. Those who hear his word and and do it, and those who hear his word and don't do it. So that's being presented to us. And then secondly, it's presented to us in a metaphor. So we're given this metaphor of two men. A wise man and a foolish man. And both of them are building a house. One of them digs down deep, as it says over in Luke chapter 6, parallel passage. He digs down deep and he plants his house. He builds his house on a foundation, on a rock. And the other one doesn't worry about that. He takes the easy way. And he just builds his house on the surface. He just builds his house on the sand. Now to both of these men's houses comes this mighty storm. It says the rain comes down, the floods come, and the wind beat against that house. And the one built on the rock stands firm. 
But the one that has no foundation, it crashes. And great was his fall. And this is the metaphor that Jesus leaves us with in the Sermon on the Mount. Now what I want to do is I want to try to highlight from this passage five truths. Okay, and you see them there on your study guide. Five truths just to highlight from this passage of Scripture. Number one, Grace Community Church, there are only two ways. There are only two ways. Jesus brings us to a crossroads in this conclusion to go one way or the other, and there's only two ways, only two options. Now, like I said, this... This whole conclusion has been bringing us to this point. If you start back in verse 13, he says, enter by the narrow gate. To just two ways. You've got the narrow gate. You've got the wide gate. You want to go the wide gate? You can take anything you want. Take your sin. Take your beliefs. Whatever you want, just go through the wide gate. You can fit anything through that gate. But he's calling you to come through the narrow gate. Now it's narrow. You can't take your luggage through it. You gotta, you gotta turn your back on the world, turn your back on your sin to go through the narrow gate. But there's only two ways. The same verse, verse 13 and 14, says there's an easy way and a difficult way. There's an easy way and a hard way. It's like, it's like a river. Life is like a river. Okay? And I know Garth Brooks said that, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'll give you a second to get that song out of your head. It's like a river that if you want to go downstream, what must you do? Man, it's so easy. Just pick up your feet and float. It's so easy to go downstream. Just pick up your feet and float, and that's the, that's the direction that you'll go. You just go right downstream. But, but what Jesus is calling us to is not that easy way, just float through life, but rather to swim upstream against the current, to go the hard way, the difficult way. In 1 Peter chapter 4, it says that the world will think it's so strange that you're not going with them in this flood, this stream of dissipation. I just can't, it's just so strange that you're just not just floating along with them. Why are you swimming upstream? And yet this is what Christ calls us to, the narrow path. There's just two ways. As he goes on to say in this passage, either uh, or in this conclusion, it's either... You're a, you're a good tree that bears good fruit or you're a bad tree that bears bad fruit. It's either one way or the other. Are you a good tree or are you a bad tree? And the way it says it in our passage, verse 24, two ways. Those who hear the words of Jesus and do it, verse 26, or those who hear the words of Jesus and do not do it. It's as simple as that. It's two options being presented to us here. Either Jesus is your king and your allegiance is to King Jesus or your allegiance is somewhere else to yourself to some other worldview some other teaching and if your allegiance is not with Christ then the scripture says that you are an enemy of Christ I want you to listen to this verse Matthew chapter 12 verse 30 says whoever is not with me is against me that's words of Christ. Whoever is not with me, only two ways. Whoever's not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. You're either with him or against him. You're either gathering with him, people into this kingdom, or you're scattered. Only two options, only two ways. Neutrality is a myth. The third option is a myth. It's either allegiance to Jesus and his word or it's hellfire. It's the only two options here. The path to destruction is broad. It can be an atheistic path to destruction. It can be an Hinduistic path to destruction. It can be an Islamic path to destruction. Or it can be more deceiving to that. It can be a very Christian-looking path to destruction. As I said earlier in this passage, you can call Jesus Lord. Lord, Lord. And he'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. You could profess Christ. You can even sit in church and hear his word again and again and again. As it says in our passage, you're hearing it. Those who hear but don't do it. 
You can hear it and yet still not be on the path to life. Path destruction is broad, but the path, the path to life is narrow. And it's very clearly defined in God's word. Is Christ Jesus your rock, your foundation? And is that evidenced by the fact that you want to hear his words and do it? The way to life is narrow. Second truth I want to highlight. Jesus in this passage is warning us about deception. Jesus is warning us about deception. Now try to catch, try to, try to understand the flow of thought of the whole conclusion, starting back in verse 13. Verse 13 and 14, two paths, narrow way or broad way. Two paths are put before us in verse 13 and 14. And then the next paragraph, verse 15 through 20, we're warned about deceivers. Watch out for deceivers. Watch out for false teachers. These are the things that get people on the false path. So often, the path to destruction. So verse 15 through 20, watch out for deceivers that get you on the broad path. Verse 21 through 27 is watch out for self-deception. Not just deceivers out there, but deception within yourself. And that gets broken down into two different ways. As I said just a moment ago, verse 21 through 23 says this self-deception in your, in your pronouncement, in your profession. You call him Lord, and Jesus says, why do you call me Lord and not do the things that I say? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So it can be self-deception in your profession, but it also can be self-deception. I, I want to warn you about this in the fact that you hear the truth. There can be a false peace that you gather up because why? A false peace because, yeah, but I hear it. I hear the words of Jesus. I hear it all the time. I'm always around hearing the truth, and that can be such a deceiving thing. And I want you to understand that. I want you to understand how deceptive it can be that just because you've heard the truth and heard it regularly doesn't mean that you're in Christ. Now that's the emphasis here. So, so in verse 24, it says, everyone who hears these words of mine. Verse 26, everyone who hears. That's the focus. It was your profession in verse 21. Now we're talking about those who hear the truth. Everyone who hears, you hear the truth, you sit under sound doctrine. You, you know, imagine Jesus, you just listened to this sermon that I just preached. Imagine him telling, these, telling that to these people on the mount. You just listened to what I just said, and yet there's no real allegiance to Jesus as Lord. It's a major problem. You don't really do his word. There's no heart to do his word. And Jesus is saying here, that's a massive problem. It can be so deceptive. Think about James 1.22. James 1.22 says, Be doers of the word, not hearers only, comma, deceiving yourself. Do you know, why is it so deceiving? Because you feel so spiritual and I'm hearing these things and I can put a few, a few points together of sound doctrine. I've got that. It's so deceiving. Don't be hearers of the word only. Be doers. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Those that are doers of the word are those that have life. Those that don't do his word. He says it's like they built their house on the sand and destruction is coming in the end. I want to read this scripture to you in Ezekiel. This is Ezekiel chapter 33. It's a good example for us to be warned about the deception. Verse 30. As for you, son of man, he's talking to Ezekiel. God speaking to Ezekiel. Your people who talk together about you by the walls and at the doors of the houses say to one another, each to his brother, come and hear what the word is that comes from the Lord. Doesn't that sound good? God says, Ezekiel, all the people out there, they're, they're all around town 
And they're looking at each other and saying, hey, come on, come on, come on. Let's go hear the word from the Lord. Let's go hear the word from the Lord from the mouth of Ezekiel. Let's go hear it. That sounds good, right? Keep reading. God says, and they come to you as people come. And they sit before you, Ezekiel, as my people. And they hear, they hear what you say. But they will not do it. They will not do it. For with lustful talk in their mouths, they act. Their heart is set on their gain. And behold, you are to them like one who sings lustful songs with a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument. That's what you're like to them, Ezekiel. You're just like one that sings beautiful songs and plays nicely on an instrument. And they love to come listen to you, but they don't have a heart to do it. For they hear what you say, but they will not do it. When this comes, and he's talking about the destruction he's going to bring to them. When this comes, and come it will, then they will know that a prophet has been among them. Deception. This hearing, 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 but not responding to Christ Jesus as the one to whom I bow down. Allegiance to him. Obedience to his word. Every time you do it, it hardens your heart. Proverbs 29.1, it says, The one who is often rebuked, but hardens his heart, will suddenly be destroyed beyond remedy. Your heart gets harder and harder and harder. And it's so deceiving because you think, you think you're just you're hearing the truth. You think it's fine and it's not okay. And we hear that in the metaphor, don't we? The metaphor here. They both have a house. They both have shelter. Everything's fine. Everything's okay until that storm comes. And the foundations get tested. Very deceiving. We need to feel that warning. Number three. Number three. The mark of a true Christian is obedience to the word. The mark of a true Christian is obedience to the word. Now, we saw that back in verse 21 through 23. So glance back at Matthew chapter 7. I want you to remember what we saw there. Last week, verse 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but who will? Who will enter the kingdom of heaven? It says here, the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. Now you have to ask the question, what is the will of the father? What is the will of God? How does someone do the will of God? Because you understand somebody could just make this up. They, They could say, oh, yeah, 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 I'm doing the will of God. Well, how do you know it's the will of God? Well, I just think it is. I think it's the will of God. It feels right. Somebody could just hijack this. And so, so how do you know? How do you know if you're doing the will of the Father? Well, jump down to verse 23. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of what? Lawlessness. Who are those that go to heaven? Those that do the will of the Father. Who are those that do not go to heaven? Those that do not do the will of the Father. What do you mean those that do not do the will of the Father? Verse 23, the lawless. The lawless. The will of the Father is revealed in His law, in His word. This is about being a doer of His word or not. The mark of a true Christian is obedience to His word, to the Scriptures. Now this comes even into more clear focus when you get to our verse. Because think about this. Jesus gives that prophecy in verse 22 and 23. The prophecy is that in the last day, men are going to come to me and say, Lord, Lord, did we not do this, do this, do this? And he'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. You you workers of lawlessness. Next verse, verse 24 is our verse. Everyone then, therefore, therefore, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them. This is about the word of God. This is the words of the Lord. 
The mark of a true Christian is those who hear his word and do it. The mark of a true Christian is not profession, as we see in verse 21, a mere profession of him as Lord or orthodox profession. The mark of true Christianity is not power. We saw that in verse 22 and 23. You got people that literally, they said, we prophesied in your name. We did many mighty works in your name. We performed wonders and cast out demons in your name. That's not a sign of true conversion. It's not a sign of true conversion. These people were condemned to hell. And also, what's not a mark of true conversion is just proximity to Christ. I, you know, I hear the, I, I was there. I was there at the Sermon on the Mount. I heard it. That doesn't mean anything. I was there. I hear his word all the time. I hear it. That proximity to the word of God, it does not mean that someone is truly a Christian or truly converted. The mark of a true Christian is being a doer of the word. So listen, what you do with the Bible says a lot about your soul. What you do with the Bible says a lot about the state of your soul. John 8, 31. It says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. How do you know if you're truly his disciple? He says there, if you abide in my word, what you do with God's word says a lot about the state of your soul. First John chapter two, verse three and four. By this, you know that you know him. If you keep his commandments, if anyone says, I know him, but then doesn't keep his commandments, he's a liar and the truth's not in him. I know him, but then no heart for his word, no love for his word, no obedience to his word. You know what the Bible says? You don't know him. That's what 1 John says. You don't know him. I think there's a lot in our culture, and please hear me out on this. There's a lot of stuff in our culture that tries to pass for Christian immaturity, which is actually false conversion. Doesn't care about his Bible, never reads his Bible, has no heart for the word of God. He just must be immature. No, no, I think a lot of stuff is flying under the radar of immaturity that actually is you need to repent and come to Christ and be saved. Walking in the ungodliness of the world, just all the wickedness of the world in your life. Oh, he's just an immature Christian. No, a lot of that's flying under the radar. Maybe he's not really a Christian. Those who abide in my word are truly my disciples. Now, just like we did last week, I want you to think about this. Am I presenting to you salvation is by your works? That if you work really hard and you obey God really hard, then you can earn your way into heaven. Is that what I'm presenting to you? And I hope you understand that that's not what I'm telling you. The way it was explained, I believe, last week was your your obedience to God's word doesn't earn your way into heaven. Your obedience to God's word is evidence that you're heaven bound. It's evidence that you're in Christ Jesus. Think about it like this. Seriously, for just a moment. We're at the end of the sermon. The Sermon on the Mount. But what about the beginning of the sermon? The introduction, verse 1 through 16. At, if you go back to that passage, who does Jesus say are his people? Remember, same sermon in 5, 1 through 16 as here. Same sermon, same preacher. And what does it say back in chapter 5, verse 1 through 16? What does it say? It says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Who are God's people? Who are Christ's citizens? Who are they? Those that are poor in spirit. You know what that means? It means they're spiritually bankrupt. They realize that spiritually they've got nothing to offer. They need help from on high. It says blessed are those who mourn. That's those that mourn over their sin. They realize their sinfulness. They realize their spiritual bankruptcy. Blessed are those who show mercy because they'll receive mercy. It's those that realize they need mercy from Christ. The people of Christ are those that know that they're sinful, they need mercy, they're spiritually bankrupt, and they fly to Christ and Christ alone. That's the same sermon, the same preacher. And so doing his word or not doing his word is evidence of whether or not you're in Christ Jesus. You're that bankrupt soul that, that fled to Christ as your rock. 
Now, another question. Am I teaching here, is this teaching sinless perfection? You know, um, how do you know if you're a Christian or not? Well, man, I ain't sinned in like five years. Doing great. Is that, is that what we have here? Absolutely not. I want you to think about this. Again, same sermon. Same preacher. Same sermon on the mount. And you go back to Matthew chapter 6, and you get the Lord's Prayer. And in that Lord's Prayer, He gives you six bullet points to pray through. And you know what one of those bullet points are? Jesus says, pray like this. And this is a daily prayer for a Christian. Father, forgive us. Forgive us our debts. Forgive us our sins. Do you, you get what I'm saying there? Jesus envisioned a Christian life that would need to every single day come before the throne of grace and say, God, forgive me for my sins. Again today, Lord, forgive me for my sins. Again today, Lord, forgive me for my sins. That, that's, this is not teaching Christian perfection. It's the same sermon. So what is the standard here? What's the mark of a true Christian? It's when you, it's when you zoom out and you get the broader view of someone's life. Not just a little snapshot, but you zoom out, you get the broader view of someone's life. A Christian is one who loves God's word and obeys it. Why? Why? Why is that what a Christian is? Because, because of Christ's salvation. When Christ saves someone, they experience regeneration where they get a new heart. They were dead and now they're alive. Their eyes were blind, now they see. That's a reality for everyone who's ever been saved. It's because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Every person that has ever been saved, the Holy Spirit has come to indwell them. They're indwelled by the third person of the one true God. That's why we can say, it's the reason we can say that those who are Christians are those who love God's word and, and, and obey it. So what's the warning here in this passage? If you're reading this passage, how should we feel warned? And it's like this. It doesn't matter how often you come to church. It doesn't matter what you profess or how much you hear the truth. If the authority of Jesus is not all over your life, there should be concern that you might not belong to Christ. Think about this sermon. How it touches on your marriage and it touches on your finances and it touches on your anxiety. And it, it just touches on all these things because this is Christ Jesus placing his authority over his people. And his people saved by the blood of Jesus Christ who died for sinners have a new heart and the Holy Spirit dwelling with them. They want this authority in their life. And when they don't, they weep and they hate it and they turn away from their sin and they're in this process. Jesus is calling us here. If you go back to the beginning of the conclusion, the beginning of the conclusion, verse 13, he actually says it. He says, enter by the narrow gate. That's the call. Come on. Enter in by the narrow gate. Don't go the broad way. Don't go the easy way. He calls us to enter. Don't just call him Lord. Don't just hear his teaching. But truly come under the authority of King Jesus. Number four, number four, there will be a final judgment with eternal consequences. We see in this passage there will be a final judgment with eternal consequences. Now I want you to think about the metaphor for a minute. The metaphor. Both of these men seem to be doing just fine. They both got a house. You can't see the foundations. House probably looks the same. Both got a house. They're doing fine. They got shelter. Everything's okay. No problem whatsoever. And then the storm comes. Look at it, verse 25. And the rain fell. Mighty storm. Rain fell. The floods came. The winds blew and beat on that house. Same thing in verse 27. It came to both of them and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and, and beat against that house. I believe this storm is a reference to the final judgment. 
It's a reference to the final judgment that will come to every single house. Now, I want you to understand why I think that. I want you to understand, I want, I want to call you into understanding that mighty storm as a judgment of God. And you can understand it that way by looking at the context. Just consider the context of this passage. Verse 13 and 14 is telling us about a path that leads to life or a path that leads to what? Destruction. And we understand that to be this, this finality of all things, to life or to destruction in verse 13 and 14. Then we get to verse 19, and we've been told about the good tree and the bad tree, and it says in verse 19, a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Excuse me, verse 19 here. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is what? Cut down and thrown into the fire. We're talking about final judgment. We're talking about eternity. Cut down. If you're not a good tree that bears good fruit, you're cut down and thrown into the fire, it says right here. And then you get to verse 22. Everything's leading up to that. In the prophecy, in the prophecy, Jesus says that in that day, that day, speaking about the coming, the last coming and the final judgment, in that day, many are going to say to me, Lord, Lord, and did we not? And on it goes. And he'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. This is final judgment language. And then our passage, verse 24, says, Everyone then, therefore, pulling from all that stuff about the final judgment, about eternity, pulling from all that stuff, and we get this metaphor of, of two men with these two houses, and guess what's coming? The storm's coming. The storm of God's final judgment is coming. The final judgment of God is coming like a storm. I got a nice house, everything's fine. Suddenly, we got language like that about the judgment in the scripture. Suddenly, all of a sudden, the storm comes. Let me read one of those to you. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Listen to this. Verse 2. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there's peace and security. My house is fine. Look at my house. I got a nice house, nice shelter. They'll say peace and security. Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. Sudden destruction. I thought everything was okay. My house looked just like his house. Until the storm came. And after the storm of God's judgment, there's no do-overs, no more chances. This is the final reckoning. And this scripture says that what a fool does, you got the wise man and you got the fool in this passage. And what the fool does, the fool gives no thought to this. He doesn't think about the judgment to come. He doesn't think about eternity. Or maybe he knows about it, but he doesn't line up his life. He, if he knows the judgment's coming, but he doesn't live his life in light of that. So he's willing to just build a house on sand, knowing that a storm's coming. It's foolish. But the wise man, the wise man gives consideration to eternity and to the final judgment. And because he knows that storm's coming, he digs deep and plants his house on a bedrock. What's real wisdom? What's real wisdom? This is real wisdom. This is real wisdom. To hear the words of Jesus. To respond. To do it. He's wise, not you. Not you. He's wise, not me. Wisdom is to follow him. Foolishness is to reject his word. I want to read a few passages to you that I hope will encourage us to, to consider the final judgment in eternity and the eternal consequences. Matthew 25, listen to verse 31. Just hear these scriptures. Let them settle in. Let them go deep into your ear. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. 
Can you see the Son of Man sitting there on his glorious throne? And it says, And before him will be gathered all the nations. And he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates a sheep from the goats. And he'll place a sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king, there he is sitting on his glorious throne, all the nations, goats here, sheep here. Then the king will say, he's going to open his glorious mouth. The king will say to those on his right, oh, listen to these words, comforting words. Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And it goes on. Then, he's still speaking, verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Depart from me. A fire that's going to last forever. It's hell forever. Burning forever. Prepare for the devil and his angels. That's where you're going. Verse 46 says, And these will go away into eternal forever and ever. The worst thing about eternal, about hell suffering, is there is no end to it. There's no, there's no peace that comes. There's no relief from the pain. It just goes on and on and on. Into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. final storm of God's judgment is coming. What will it reveal about your foundation? What will it reveal about your foundation? Think about verse 25. What did it say? That wise man built his house on a rock. That storm of God's judgment comes and it says his house stood firm. It did not fall. Why? What does it say? It says because his house was built on a rock. He dug deep and put it on the foundation. Verse 27, though, this man that built his house on the sand, the storm of God's wrath and judgment came, and his house was crushed. Why was it crushed? Because it wasn't on the rock. It wasn't on the rock. What's the foundation of your life? What, are you, what, what have you built and are building your life on? Is it on the rock? Is it on Christ? Is it on the solid foundation? 1 Corinthians 3.11 No other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Is your, is your foundation on the rock, on the one who died for you? The one that took away your sins through his own suffering, raised from the dead. And is it evidence that your life is on that rock because of your obedience to his word? Or are you on some other ground? Are you on sand? That when the final judgment comes, though you might profess, though you might hear, though you might show up, it's going to become plain that destruction is the end. That's a sobering last sentence that Jesus gives there. Think about this. This whole sermon, and what's the last sentence? And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and, bare against, and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. That's it. No, no perky pick-me-up at the end of the sermon. Just that. It leaves you with a threat of judgment. Last thing I want to highlight is that Jesus, and I think you can see it in this passage, Jesus is the God-man. Jesus is the God-man. You know, one way, one way, I want to encourage you this, one way to know who Jesus is, you want to know who he is? You know, study the word, obviously, but let me give you something more, even more specific in the word. Is go, everything that Jesus said, everything that came off of Jesus' lips, Go grab it and gather them all up in one spot and read them carefully. 
And what do you understand about Jesus by what's on his lips? So an example might be as you do that, you'll come across a phrase where Jesus looks at someone and says, says, your sins are forgiven. <laughs> so what do you learn about Jesus from that little phrase? Study every little phrase. And when he says, your sins are forgiven, your heart ought to be full. Man, he thinks he's God and he can forgive sins. That's exactly what the Pharisees said. They said, who can forgive sins but God alone? Other phrases you might run into, you know, you're, you're looking at everything Jesus said, and there's this massive storm going on. They're in a boat, and Jesus stands up, and he doesn't look at any human. He looks at a storm and says, peace, be still. Who is this man? And, they, and, and it happened. Who's this man that even the winds and the waters obey him? And he knows that about himself. He just spoke to the storm and told it to be still and stop. He can stop hurricanes. Who is this man? It's the God-man. You'll find a phrase where he says, before Abraham was, I am. And this man thought he was before Abraham. I am before Abraham. Well, I don't want you to miss this one. So as you do a study like that and you're thinking, who is this Savior? Who is this Christ? I want you to see in our passage, verse 24 through 27, I want you to see this one little phrase that he says that I think is really important. He says, everyone then who hears these words, two words, of mine. Everyone who hears these words, listen, of mine. Same thing in verse 26. Everyone who hears these words of mine. Now think about that for just a minute. He, he's not talking about the words of the law. He's been talking about that through the Sermon on the Mount. And that's the word of God, the words of the law. But he's not talking about the words of the law right there. He says these words of mine. You imagine that. Who is this man? A real human with an eye color. A real human, a real man. And he stands before a group of people and he says, your eternity hinges. Your eternity hangs on what you do with the words coming out of my mouth. Man, who does he think, it, who does he, think he is? This is the God man. This is Christ Jesus the Lord. Who says, I'm the one that's going to stand there on the day of judgment. I'm the king that's going to sit on that glorious throne. And I'm going to say, come, all you blessed of my father, towards those whose hope is in Christ. And you see that by their, the fruit of their life. And then he's the one that's going to stand before the lost. And he's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. What you do with my words, Jesus says, is going to determine your final destruction? Is your house going to be destroyed? Or whether or not you stand in the last day. What you do with these words of mine. And that ought to cause us to worship the God-man. We ought to worship the God-man. I'll just leave you with this. The words of the Sermon on the Mount, and especially here toward the end, can seem hard. These can feel these can feel like these are man, these feel like hard words coming from Christ. But I want to encourage you not to miss the God man's love in telling you and telling all of us these things. Uh, I think I think it was a uh, it might have been D.A. Carson. I was reading this commentary sarcastically. He said, man, Jesus just hadn't been training how to end sermons. You know, You're supposed to end them with something chippery, right? The end. And he doesn't do that here. It seems hard. But how do, you see the, how do you see the love in this sermon? How do you see that? You imagine people in that crowd. Was there somebody in that crowd that listened to that sermon on the mount and they're sitting there and they're overhearing Jesus talk to his disciples? And as they listen, they hear that final bringing them to the crossroads, narrow path, broad path. Was there somebody in the crowd that day that heard those words from Jesus? And instead of being left to themselves to the last day and then going to hell, they heard those words and they responded. And they said, I want him to be my rock. That's my rock. That's my, that's my savior. And they followed him and they were converted. They were regenerated.
Imagine how many people, this is, this is a loving thing for him to say, you imagine how many people over the centuries have heard the words, the final words of this sermon, and it broke their heart over their sin, and they turned their back on the world, and right now they're with Christ forever because of it. This is love. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for these words. And I pray, Lord, that you would help every one of us, Lord. All my brothers and sisters in Christ, that you would help them to hear these words from your mouth, Lord Jesus. And to love them and enjoy them, Lord, and have a heart to obey them and preach them. Lord, thank you for the cross where you died for our sins. Thank you for the promises that you would cause us to persevere to the end. For being our high priest that always lives to make intercession for us. And therefore, you said we can be saved to the uttermost. Thank you for holding us fast. And I pray that you would do that with all of my brothers and sisters, Lord. You would hold us all fast. And we would be those that obey your word to the very end. And God, I pray for any soul in here right now that despises these words, that hates what's been said here today and hates what's been read here. Or anyone here, Lord, who just wants to ignore it and is bored with it, God. God, if anyone here is in this category of professing you and hearing your truth, Lord, but having a house built on sand, God, I pray that you would turn them. Help them to see their sin and turn their back on it and come to Christ. Thank you, Lord, for your help. In Jesus' name, amen.